you know, just about a month ago, uh, Jen and I celebrated our 15th year wedding anniversary, and um, it was a good time. Uh, went to TD's. Uh, if you've never been to TD's on the corner of 2nd and Elm on a Monday night about 10 p.m., you need to go. Uh, that's what made our night so awesome. If you've never heard of TD's, just Google it. You'll, you'll, you'll find all you need to know. Uh, but that whole day, we kind of did this 24-hour thing, you know, it just wasn't just dinner and, uh, and then TDs later. Um, we started earlier in the afternoon, and Jen had heard about these audio tours that you can get through the library. And there's an audio tour of kind of historic downtown Lexington. So we got on the library website, we downloaded it, we're listening to it in our earbuds, walking around downtown. Um, yes, we've been married for 15 years, so we're old and we're a bit nerdy. And... Um, and so we're doing this tour. We get to the corner of Limestone and Maine. And there was this really long description about the Phoenix Hotel. Uh, the, this hotel used to sit right, uh, right there on that corner, right across from the new city center, right there in front of the library in what's now called Phoenix Park. Well, I didn't know this, but there used to be a hotel there. It was a historic hotel. Lots of big things happened there. Well, one of the things that they went in, in, into detail about that happened at the Phoenix Hotel happened in 1961. Uh, 1961, the Boston Celtics were in town and they were playing this preseason game at Memorial Coliseum. Now, if you didn't go to UK, you might not know where Memorial Coliseum is, but it's right in the heart of UK's campus. That's where uh, UK's men's basketball team used to play before Rupp Arena. And so the Celtics were going to play this preseason game there at Memorial. They're staying in the hotel. And they were looking to be uh, served there at the, uh, the restaurant there in the lobby. Uh, the whole team and the African-American players who were on the Celtics were refused service uh, there. And so in response, they refused to play in that game and they just flew home. Well, one of those players was a guy named Bill Russell. Now, Bill Russell, you might not have heard of him. Uh, he's still alive. He's in his upper 80s. Uh, but he is one of the greatest basketball players of all time. Um, he won 11 NBA championships in 13 years. 11 in 13 years. That's crazy. He won five NBA trophies. And he really revolutionized the game because he was a different kind of player than had come up through the ranks up to that point. Uh, he was a center, so he was, he was the tallest guy on the court. But he revolutionized the game, not by being this big, offensively skilled player, but by, but by being this slender, this athletic, defensive-oriented center. And so amidst all these basketball accolades, what he's probably best well known for is what's in line with what happened at the Phoenix Hotel in Lexington. What he maybe is best known for is his fight for racial justice. Now, he had grown up uh, in a world of racial injustice. He grew up in Louisiana. And when he was in Louisiana, you can just imagine how he would have been treated uh, back in the 30s and the 40s before he moved his family to San Francisco. When he was in San Francisco uh, with his mom, his dad, his brothers and sisters, uh, he, he grew up there, ended up going to college there at the University of San Francisco. And when he played at the University of San, San Francisco, he was jeered uh, by white students at all the, all the coliseums that he went to. And you'd think he'd grow out of that once he was this big-name basketball player and he played in the NBA, but he wasn't. Things like the Phoenix Hotel happened, but it also happened in North Carolina. He was refused to even given a room when he was in North Carolina as a professional athlete. And so in the midst of all of this racial injustice that was happening to him, he began to side with athletes like Muhammad Ali, like the running back for the Browns, Jim Brown, this guy named Lou Alcindor who changed his name to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And they all stood together. They made these stands and they paid a price. 
They all paid a different price, but in one way, what Russell's price was is that he was frequently characterized at the time as this icy figure to the media. Thought he was just this angry man, always wagging the finger at everybody else. But over time, his public perception changed. In 2011, he was given the Presidential Medal for Freedom by President Obama. But I think what's interesting about Bill Russell and his story, what happened just a few blocks from here, what's interesting about what happened in the Civil Rights Movement is its ability to be self-critical. To not just highlight the racial injustice that existed out there, but the crooked ways that existed within its own adherence. See, Bill Russell, for all his contributions, it's undeniable, but he slipped from resisting the authorities that were unjust into hatred. And he slipped into it at this one point, and here's what he said. He said, I dislike most white people because they're people. I like most blacks because I am black. And not long after that, it just took a few days, and the story of him coming out and saying, Uh, that he was sorry is riveting, but here's one line. He said, I considered my comments as a deficiency within myself. Now, if I just put myself in Russell's shoes, which is hard for me to do as a white man, but if I put myself into his shoes, I'd think, man, I would have said the same thing and probably a whole lot worse and probably a whole lot more times than Russell would have. And when I said it, I would have defended to my grave that what I said was just, but not Russell. Instead, he was self-critical and he pointed the finger at himself, too. Recently, I, I listened to a podcast uh, and it was they were interviewing a guy named Cornell West, a philosopher. And he made a comment that I'm not going to forget. And he said that social activism starts with being self critical. What does it mean to be self-critical? It means to resist the beast of pride that lies within your own soul. Now, I don't have any idea where Bill Russell and Cornell West, where they are with Jesus, but I think their lives and their comments speak to a crucial aspect of the Christian life in the here and now. And here's what it is. There are more, there are powerful forces at work within us and outside of us that seek our demise. And some of us don't resist at all, but if we do, we usually pick one of the two forces to resist. Either we're very aware of the broken cultural forces that are on the outside and we resist only those. And if that's you, you become a very bitter person. Or... You resist the pride of hate within yourself, but you're blind and you're unaware that there are much larger forces at play. And so you're not bitter, but you're naive. So how can we not, how can we resist both being bitter and being naive? Well, I think we see it in our text. Uh, So let's pray and then we'll get started. Uh, Father, we do need your help. Uh, Lord, it's, um, for some of us, it's hard to think uh, about the fact that we're part of something much larger. And Lord, we're naive. And other, others of us, Lord, it's real easy for us to see that we're part of something much larger, but it's really hard for us to point our finger at ourselves. Lord, help us be balanced. Lord, would you lift up the person of Jesus and change us tonight. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if you've not been with us the last couple of weeks, we've been in Esther. Uh, 
So let me catch you up to speed with Esther. Esther's in the Old Testament, and it takes place uh, in ancient Persia during the years of the exile. Um, the Jews, they've been defeated uh, in their homeland, and they've been uh, carted off into captivity uh, by Babylon that changes into Persia. And they've been there long enough in Babylon and in Persia that they can't, um, that they've lost all of uh, who they were as God's chosen people. And they've just assimilated right into the pagan ways of the larger culture. And the king's name of Persia during Esther is this guy named Xerxes. And man, he's a real trip. If you've been with us, you see uh, what he's really like. Uh, We see in chapter one that he throws this six month rager. This six-month raging party where he invites all the political elites to try to curry their favor uh, so that he can throw a big war uh, against the Greeks and become not just the number two empire in the world, but the number one. So he's trying to win them over with all the food and drink. And then he calls in the queen. He calls in Queen Vashti, not for political purposes, not for relational purposes, but we know for what kind of purposes it was. He's going to show her off to gain even more of their favor. But Vashti is her name, the queen, and she refuses. And so the king is befuddled, he's angry, and so he looks to his advisors who are around him, and he says, what should I do? And they come up with this plan. His advisors say, here's what we should do. We should uh, take the rights and the title of queen away from Vashti, and we should send a letter uh, to the entire empire saying that women must obey their man. Well, of course, Xerxes is like, man, that sounds like the best plan I've ever heard of. So he sends this letter to the whole world, the whole Persian world. And after a few years, he has this harem uh, for certain purposes, but he needs something more than a harem. He needs something to scratch a niche that's deeper than his sexuality, that he needs this affirmation that males need. Vashti provided that for him. And so he goes to his advisors again, and they come up with this great plan. It's really not that great, but it was great to him. They said, hey, go throughout the whole empire, gather all the beautiful young virgins, invite them to stay at the palace for a year where they undergo beauty treatments, and then you get one night with each of them. Once you've had one night with each of them, you get to pick the one that you want to be your queen. He's like, man, you guys are great. You all came up with another great plan. So they start pulling these women in from all over the empire. One such woman is this woman named Esther. Well, Esther's a Jew. She was raised by a Jew, her older cousin. His name's Mordecai. And that's where we pick up today. So let's read uh, chapter 2, verse 19 uh, through 3.6. Now, uh, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known uh, her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she brought, uh, just when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's units, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Xerxes. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these things, King Xerxes promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gates bowed down and paid homage to Haman. 
for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to him, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. The word of the Lord. All right, so let's start here with Mordecai. We see Mordecai a little bit. We see Haman a little bit. And we see Xerxes a little bit. And so when you get to Mordecai, you see that he discovers this plot. This plot where there's these two men, Big Than and Teresh. And Big Than and Teresh are part of the king's inner circle. And they desire to assassinate Xerxes. Mordecai uncovers the plan. Mordecai tells Esther, who's the queen. Esther tells Xerxes. And Xerxes has these two jokers hung. And this really does fall right in line with what we know about Mordecai up to this point in the narrative. We know that up to this point in the narrative, all Mordecai wants to do is stay in really good graces with King Xerxes. We find out that he lives in the citadel of Susa. And to live in the citadel of Susa means that he wants to stay as close to the king as he can to be in his good graces. See, most of the other Jews, they lived out on the fringes of town, but not so with Mordecai. Mordecai wanted to stay close to the king. He also wanted to be a part of the, 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 the political practices that were happening day in and day out. We found out that Mordecai was always in the king's gates, and that's where the political business took place. We also know by his name, his name Mordecai. From the name Mordecai comes, there, there's a word within his name. The name is Marduk. Marduk was the lead god of the Persian pagan religion. Why would he want that name? So that he could blend right in to the Persian culture, even though that he's Jewish. We also know he wants to blend right in because when they come by and they're trying to, they're trying to assemble these, this, this core of uh, beautiful versions throughout the Persian empire, they come to his doorstep and they ask for Esther and he gives her up willingly. All this to stay in the king's good graces. So, of course, when he uncovers this plan for Xerxes to be assassinated, he's going to make sure that Xerxes finds out about it. But as we read through the story, we see that Mordecai also refuses to obey the king's command. And it doesn't make sense based on all we know about Mordecai. If he's all about staying in the king's good, on his good side, why would he not bow down when the king orders him to bow? We've got to zoom out a little bit to figure that out. The king, as we found out, he's all about having this team around him, this, these advisors. And we see at least 18 of them in chapters 1 and 2. They help him make the decisions on Vashti. Then they help him make decisions on how to select a new queen. But now the king is skittish. He's got these 18 people around him, but two of his closest advisors had sought to assassinate him. So he's anxious that they're literally going to stab him in the back. So what does he do? How does he overcome his anxiety? He chooses one. 
He chooses one man named Haman, consolidates all the power into him. And Haman is not just the king's only advisor. The king has also granted something to Haman that he's not granted to anybody up to this point in his rule. That Haman has the ability to act in Xerxes' stead without consulting Xerxes. So what Xerxes has done is that he's aligned himself so closely with Haman that to honor Haman is to honor Xerxes. To honor Xerxes is to honor Haman. And that's why King Xerxes has demanded that everyone bow down to Haman whenever they see him. Mordecai can't stand that thought. He can't stomach it. So he doesn't do it, even though the king's commanded it. And here's why. Mordecai probably bowed down to Xerxes at different points. We find out that Esther bows down to Xerxes in chapter 8. But why would he not bow to Haman? I think there are a couple answers. The, the first one, the second one we'll get to a lot later. The first one is Haman represented the idolatry of power. The idolatry of power. This consolidation into one figure. And this one figure named Haman, he's referred to as an Agagite. Now, Agagite probably doesn't mean anything to you when you read it. didn't mean nothing to me when I read it. But then I found out that an Agagite comes from the word Agag. And Agag was a famous king of the Amalekites. So Agagites are synonymous with Amalekites. And their history with Israel was real rough. The Amalekites were one of the thorns in Israel's side. They were brutal. They had no moral foundation. They, they had no religion that we know of. And when you read through the Old Testament, you read about other peoples like the Canaanites. And the Canaanites are dis dis despicably evil. But at least the Canaanites had some limits. The Amalekites didn't. The Amalekites, they first encounter the Jews on, in their desert journey as they get from Egypt into the Promised Land. And when they're in this caravan, the, the weakest of the Jewish people are in the back. The children, the elderly, and the disabled. Well, the Amalekites' plan was to attack the rear of the caravan and wipe out the children, the elderly, and the disabled. That's how uncompromising that they were. And so from this time forth, when they were in the desert, God's people viewed the Amalekites as the most brutal and power-hungry of all the nations. So when the author of Esther identifies Haman as an Agagite, he's telling us that he's a powerful tyrant of great proportion. And we see just how tyrannical he is by what he does, don't we? One person, just Mordecai, doesn't bow down to him. And he orders for all Jews across the entire empire to be killed. It's totally unreasonable, even for pagan standards. But that's what happens in idolatry. Idolatry turns us into monsters. Now, you might think idolatry is referring to worshiping something that's a, a clay statue, a metal statue, maybe a stone figurine. And that's what idolatry really is. You, you think of it maybe as something that happened in ancient times, something that happens in, in, in modern Eastern religions. Uh, you see it as something that modern Westerners, that we've outgrown. 
And it's understandable if that's your view of idolatry. But what if idolatry is something more sly? What if idolatry is something that's more universal to the human condition? See, the scriptures, they talk about idolatry as being more than bowing down to figurines that represent gods. The scriptures talk about idolatry as being the worship of something, of someone that we trust to provide for us peace, victory, or provision. And if it's true, that's what idolatry is. And your idol could be a statue, but it could also be a person. It could be a possession. Now, I've never worshipped a statue, and you likely haven't either. But you do worship something. And if you say Jesus, you're giving yourself way too much credit. This whole idea of identifying our idols, it's really tricky business to locate exactly what our idol might be. For instance, if you spent much time around recovering addicts, uh, it would be easy to characterize addicts as whatever they're an addict to is the thing that has the most power over them. But the truth is with addicts that there's something beneath the alcohol, something beneath the drugs that is their real idol. And I think if we look at Haman, it would really help us to locate what lies underneath the surface. See, one way to locate your idol is to know what makes you so angry. And what made him so angry was not being respected. That's what made him overreact. That's what made him unreasonable. But what makes you overreact? What makes you unreasonable? See, Haman, his, his idol to power, it was blocked when Mordecai refused to bow down to him. And he went absolutely nuts. He did become a monster. What makes you a monster? Is it when you're disrespected like Haman? That's what you take as great offense to you? Then your idol might just be power. What makes you a monster? Is it rejection? Is rejection your worst nightmare? If so, your idol might just be approval. Maybe you can't handle it when your expectations of a spouse or of your children, they go unfulfilled. If that's the case, maybe idolatry for you is the idol of family. See, all we've got to do is we've got to trace our anger. We have to trace our anxiety backwards. And when we do, you'll find your idol lying in the weeds, trying to stay hidden and unattended to. And as we keep reading through Esther, what you're going to find in Haman is that he disintegrates. He becomes less and less of a human being and more and more of a monster. And that's what happens to us in our idolatry. It affects us in profound ways. But idolatry doesn't just affect us, it affects others. Think about Mordecai. (laughs) Haman wanted to have him hung. Think about uh, the, the rest of the Jews. He wanted to kill them off too. All because of his idolatry of power. See, there's always collateral damage. There's always the death of innocence when it comes to our idolatry. Think about your office. Your idolatry, you walk into the office, you walk into your workplace, and maybe whatever your idolatry is in regards to your work, it very well could lead to burnt out employees, burnt out coworkers, lost, embittered ex clients. 
could lead to breaking the law. Why? Because all things have to bow down to your idol in the workplace. Think about the collateral damage that happens in our homes when it comes to our idolatry. Could lead to lonely spouse, could lead to lonely children, could lead to families who are starved for your love and attention. All because of what your idolatry in you does to those in your home. See, here's the bottom line. Our idolatry has consequences for us and for others. So what should we do? We read through this. What should we do when we think about how Haman was hamstrung by his idolatry? When we read about how Mordecai was negatively impacted by the idol of power in Haman? How do we think about that? I think it kind of boils down to this one word, that we should resist. Now, we've got to resist the evil powers of our dark age. And if we don't, we participate in them. Think about it with Bill Russell. He he refused to participate in the idolatry of power by not playing that game in Memorial Hall. Think about it with Mordecai. He refused to participate in Haman's idolatry by not bowing down to him. And when we resist the idols, especially powerful idols that exist in others and in our culture, it's going to take a lot of courage and it's going to take a lot of vulnerability. Mordecai had this conviction that he was not going to participate in Haman's idolatry. And it took an enormous amount of courage and moral, mortal, moral fortitude. But he also became vulnerable because anytime we confront someone else about their idolatry, it opens us up to harm. So what kind of cultural evil are you acutely aware of? What kind of cultural evil do you need to resist? Maybe there's a person in your life whose idolatry is negatively impacting you. It's impacting others. And now it's time to oppose their idols and call them to repentance. And this is the kind of resistance that we need to have towards outside sources. But now let's talk about resisting those that are within. Think about Bill Russell. Let's go back to him. Even in in the heat of fighting injustice, he let hatred take over for just a moment. All the good that he set into motion, his own personal evil went unattended. But he nipped it, and he nipped it quickly, by his apology. And that's what we're called to do as well. We got to keep the finger pointed at ourselves and print our own idolatrous hearts as we resist the idolatry of our culture. We need to, to, to look at what we're so quick to justify. Look at our boy Haman. I bet you if you would have found Haman in the midst of the episode that we read here in Esther 2 and 3, You were to ask him, well, why are you so passionate about Mordecai bowing down to you? I think he'd probably say something like, we just want to uphold respect for the king, respect for authority. We're losing that here in our day. Sound familiar? I think if you would have interviewed Haman, he would have said, I mean, the Persian culture is glorious. And we just need people to respect that. What's he doing? He's justifying it. But we do the same things, don't we? We say things like, I'm just really passionate about, blank, 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 blank. And what we're really saying is, 
you're likely passionate about something because it's an idol in your life. A lot of times we say, well, it's just my personality. The problem with pulling the Enneagram card, the problem with pulling the Myers-Briggs card is that our personalities have unique pitfalls and they're in need of transforming grace of the gospel too. You might say, well, I, Pastor, I just really like nice things. Okay. But isn't it possible that materialism has snuck its way into your heart in such a way that money's an idol for you? See, this is the kind of work that the gospel requires of us. And if we're not careful, we can be warriors against the injustice we see out here in the world, all while being monsters because our idols have run wild. But here's what really gets me about this story. What really gets me is the change that we see in Mordecai. See, within the course of narrative, you're supposed to be surprised when Mordecai doesn't bow. He's never done the right thing when it comes to relating to power. He's always willing to compromise his Jewish identity in order to stay in good favor with the powers that be. But he stood up and he said, I'm a Jew. So what happened to him? What happened to Mordecai? The answer is simple, friends. God got a hold of his life. God stepped between Mordecai and his, unwill- and his willingness to compromise and said, Mordecai, enough is enough. God's patience, God's mercy to Mordecai, they're astounding. He's given Mordecai chance after chance after chance. He's given him do-over after do-over after do-over. He's given him more opportunities than he can count to reset. And maybe that's what God's doing with you tonight. Maybe tonight is where you wake up to the ways you've been unwilling to deal with your idols. And tonight you say, I'm done. Maybe tonight, tonight you're going to quit giving to the temptation to assimilate to the water culture. And tonight you're going to say, I'm going to stand up to the materialistic ways that exist in my own soul. I'm going to stand up to the prejudiced ways that exist in my own soul. I'm going to stand up to the, I'm going to resist the ungodliness that exists in my own soul, to my own sexual sins, to my own confused way of thinking about gender. I know this is scary. I know it seems impossible. I know it's easier to live in the shame of your past rather than trust that God can actually change you moving forward. But friends, this is why Jesus rose again from the dead. See, when Jesus rose again from the dead, he brought the new and perfect world into the old and rotten world. And his resurrection bug, it's spreading. The new world is invading the old and that power can change you and can change our culture. Will you let Jesus do that in your life? Let's pray. Lord, it's easier to give in than it is to resist. It's easier to be bitter, naive. Uh, but Lord, we, uh, we want to be in the know. <laughs> Not for the sake of enlightenment, as much as for the sake of you 
uh, working in and through us. So, Lord, work in and through us uh, this evening. In Christ's name, amen.